Cara Webster with Increative Company, and I'm so thrilled today to be talking about the movie The Beanie Bubble. We are joined today by writer and director Kristen Gore and director and composer Damien Kulash Jr. And I wanted to start by talking about the the tone of the movie and the way that you've approached telling this story because there's very intricate interpersonal drama. Um, you know, there's obviously kind of the heightened aspect of the explosion of this business in the 90s. And then there's elements of comedy and humor. And I was interested in how you found the approach of how you wanted to interlace these different tones into something that would feel really cohesive for the audience. Great question. Well, we were drawn to this story because we... Um, care a lot about character-driven stories that get at more meaningful themes that we're interested in exploring, but do it in a really joyful way. And we, that's what we like to consume. That's what we try to make. And so we, when we approached the story, we knew that that was the, the tonal balance that needed to be our North Star. And because there's so much packed into this story that we do care about, um, there's the, obviously just the fact that people lost their minds over tiny stuffed animals for three years and treated them like gold, which is absurd and insane. But that's um, like a, a, a gateway drug. Like that's not, we actually don't care very much about the Beanie Babies or or the, like mostly that provides this incredible backdrop for something so ludicrous to happen. Yeah, exactly. That that really is just the backdrop for this these more meaningful story that we wanted to tell about the things that we value, who and what we value and why, you know, and the female relationship to the American dream and how so much of where we are now got started back in the 90s with the these seeds being planted. Like those were what really drew us to the, the story. But there's such interesting characters in these um, different decades. And we needed to tell that all in what we hoped would be like a, a a fast and fun and interesting ride. And so we used this unconventional structure that's nonlinear, you know, where we jump between stories and that um, I'll let you jump no, in because uh, I've been talking for a long time. Go ahead. I mean, to us, the story, it's not the story of the Beanie Babies and it's not really the story of, of Ty, the inventor of the Beanie Babies. Uh, when we thought about Beanie Babies as of a few years ago, at least, there was sort of the eye rolling kind of like, could you believe people would be so crazy as to think that like a $5 bean bag would put them through college that it seemed insane. And then you look, and then we read the book about how it all happened. Um, Zach Bissonette's book and, and see that at every level, it's the, the, it's the same things we're all doing all the time. And, that the, and, and especially that the, that the female relationship to that process, the American dream, was this recurring cycle that that over decades, many women had the same relationship to this company and to this man. And we wanted to tell that story, that like what that cycle is. And it meant sort of um, superimposing them so that you're so that you fall in love with this opportunity. You fall in love with the American dream in the in the same at the same time as these women do in the same way. And that when it lets you down and you have to figure out your way out of that, that happens in the same way in the same time. And it, had we done it in a linear way, it would have, I think, just been, it would have been the story of one product or the story of that man. And we really wanted it to be more universal than that. 
Right. And there's something very interesting about in terms of the nonlinear storytelling, the way that it creates different perspectives at different moments as well. And even just that that central scene where essentially Maya and Sheila come into Ty's world around the time that Robbie is is extricating herself from from his pull and his bubble. Um, and so how did you set about finding the the different language that you wanted each story to have in terms of what's this character's perspective, especially at moments when there's kind of intersections and crossovers? of the same time period for them? Well, we wanted, so it was very important for us to, um, that the viewer was allowed to sort of discover that and, and it was a puzzle for the viewer to sort of solve that way that you go on the journey with them and you you only realize hopefully towards the end that um, that like you, you kind of haven't gone anywhere, that the same man in the same scene is both the big opportunity and the big letdown. And that... Um, it, really each one of their individual worlds is going through the same cycle. And in terms of differentiating them um, on film, we were really careful to, we had a, a specific color palette for each of the stories that uh, that hopefully isn't so obvious that people are sort of, that you feel like you're in a Crayola commercial and it's like overly stylized, but we wanted it to be just a little bit more uh, organized and finely tuned than real life and not to make it more 80s or to make it more 90s, in fact, to make it universal, to go like, this is sort of the color of memory. It's like the sort of perfect time when anything could happen because each of these people is living through the timeless story that that we've lived through, that our kids will live through, that our parents live through, um, it, that this, this story keeps on happening. I mean, I love that you're bringing up the use of color there as well, because it's even that that very specific use of different colors for each of the women. And the fact that when we're in Robbie's world, Elizabeth Banks's character, it's like a lot of blues. And, you know, for Sheila, Sarah Slick's character, it's like these elements of red. But then how did you kind of want to add that extra layer of how are we playing around with color and the idea of that and having this opposing contradiction once Ty enters their world and it's a different space for them? We had a giant spreadsheet for that. Yeah. Um, there's what happens. There's we we will try not to get into too much detail with you, but it, basically there's five five phases of the story, and in each one, if there each one starts with a, a a primary color, adds a tertiary color that makes it look pretty, then the then the complementary color that makes it look angry comes in. Like they each of them goes on a color journey, and none of them are the same colors, but they're all on the same journey, and hopefully you then wind up with this feeling like right in the most intense moments, you have the exact same color intensity across those stories, but it's not the same color. Right. And in those moments, exactly. Those scenes where you eventually see them from two different perspectives, then we were aware of, well, we're, we're clearly in one woman's perspective and one in this scene. And so we're approaching it with this lens. Um, and then in this, when we revisit it, it's this other person, but it has to all seem seamless as well. So luckily we had incredibly talented production designer and cinematographer and a costume designer helping us bring this vision to life. Who are willing to work off of a giant spreadsheet like that. Yeah. I think it's pretty unusual for people to show up at the, at the pre-production meetings going like, okay, in scene 59, you're only allowed to use violet, teal, and yellow, nothing else, please. And like, they're like, well, you're like, it won't work unless you do. It was a pretty, it was a, it was a ridiculous way to to make a movie but but we hope it worked it it doesn't and one of the other aspects that I wanted to talk about on screen is is the literal creation of the beanie babies that we see in the film because there's moments where there's very specific choices in terms of which toys we're seeing because they influence aspects of the narrative that we're telling um but my understanding is that you had to actually your team had to actually hand create all the beanie babies um and so I was really fascinated and kind of 
the the reasoning behind why they all had to be handcrafted and then how you said about looking at with how many different designs and animals there were over time, which would be the right ones to create and bring into the story? Well, luckily there were so many made over time that you 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 could pick any animal you want and you'd be close. Yeah, that's true. There's a, a wide, wide, wide variety of things to choose from. Lots, some of the, you know, hero animals in our film just emerged from the storytelling, you know, that there there were specific ones that actually played specific roles in the narratives. And so those we knew, Ava's ghost, you know, had to be one that was featured. And, um, and there are a couple others like that. And we didn't, we didn't actually know, we never would have expected to make a film about Beanie Babies, you know, that sort of was a surprise to us. <laughs> We didn't expect it to be full of all these other themes that we cared so deeply about and feel compelled to to bring it to life. Um, and in a similar vein, like we never expected to be involved in in a production that was making thousands of stuffed animals to use in that movie. And so it during was... a pandemic in a supply chain crisis and as it turned out in Chinese New Year. So you, like a whole new part of the supply chain is just shut down for six weeks at a time. It was intense. Yeah. And, and very fun. But we had really incredible people working around the clock on it. And um, and that was a just funny part of the whole thing when we're keeping track of all the other parts of the production to just also have notes about, you know, the designs of tiny stuffed animals <laughs> coming at us at all hours. Um and in the story you have you have Ty as a as a sort of um peculiar perfectionist being like the eyes are too close together and then in real life we're like looking at prototypes of animals going like the eyes are too close to like <laughs> we realized how much we had recreated his universe just by trying to mass produce animals at the same time and in in terms of the story itself and and kind of examining it there's so much in terms of the contextualization of that specific time period and you know the the fact that the internet was so new at that point and so with Geraldine Viswanathan's character obviously you know she's on the precipice of being one of the earliest people to really understand that from a business sense in a way that other people at her company don't even understand um and so how did you set about making sure that you were always having that kind of underlying contextualization of of this is actually why it happened this specific way because of the specific timing of it as well that was really important to us because that uh, the book makes clear that it, you know, it really only came about because it was the advent of eBay and the rise of the Internet. You know, something was going to explode and it happened to be these tiny beanbag animals, <laughs> uh, which is absurd. But that people forget people younger than us don't even know that there was a time before the internet was at everyone's fingertips <laughs> and that you know Maya says at the beginning when we meet her character like I was just trying to get a temp job not usher in a new era of capitalism and what got ushered in by the age of the internet and this uh is just changed the entire landscape for everyone and so we wanted to be true to that to really to really demonstrate what an important element of the story it was and also Maya's character is the one that is closest to our we were about her age when this was happening in real life and so though we were not tech geniuses like she is we understand what it's like to you know or maybe you were but I was not um then we understand 
Um, and, and what Geraldine actually really connected to was everyone's had the experience of like trying to teach someone about a web page or technology they don't know how to use, you know, an older generation. And, and she loved that aspect of it. And it's such, and that, um, is such an important part of the real financial story of being babies and, um, of, of bubbles in general, you know, when like new things come in and just sort of supercharge things and all these crazy directions you never saw coming. There's, so yeah, oh, I'm sorry. no, go ahead. The, the, there's also like a very, it was a careful balance to strike in terms of, um, nostalgia and period specificity and universality Yeah, because we wanted this to be the story that everybody has lived through. At least every woman has lived through. I mean, the, almost all of the terrible things that, that are said to a woman in this film have been said to Kristen. And we wanted it to be that story that, that, that is universal and, and timeless. And the colors chosen, in fact, were specifically chosen against type in terms of being like, we don't want it to be the garish nineties or the sort of like, um, you know, bright eighties. It wasn't it, like, we specifically wanted it to be a universal other time, but also have this feeling that like in the time right before now, whenever you are, whether it's 20 years before this moment or 20 years before that moment, there's always these sort of wild west freedoms that you have no idea are going to make, make the future and that are going to remake the same thing over and over again. And the internet is, of course, a huge one for our generation because we were in college at the time. I do remember when when websites started having pictures and it was sort of like, what's this thing going to be? And now that that seems so, um, so sort of simple and naive. But we're also living through that right now. Like we're doing that with AI at the moment. We're doing that with like, we're all always living through that moment that our little simple decisions like Maya's do create these massive new worlds that strangely keep on recreating the same power dynamics that we still have women being treated the same way. And we still have the guy taking too much credit. We still have, you know, the, the inequities all throughout the system. And, and with the character of Ty in the film, I think you do a great job at kind of creating that element of understanding the charisma and like what drew people in and what drew these women into his orbit. Um, and then exactly why they all wanted to extricate themselves. And there's kind of little ways at the beginning and then bigger ways that he just kind of centers everything back towards himself. So even the the proposal scene for Sheila, it's not necessarily about her and what right. she would want. It's about his showmanship. And so how did you set about creating those kind of like little microcosms of him kind of pulling everything back towards himself and then take it to that space where like we're in the middle of an engagement and it's actually really all about him? <laughs> well, he's not a, he, it was important that he's not a good guy or a bad guy. And he, in fact, is like, it's, it, uh, he stays more or less the same throughout, but your perspective on him changes depending on with where you are in the woman's story. And um, that felt really important to us that it's not that in, in terms of nuancing how this system is built, that he's, uh, that he's just doing the obvious thing for him too. It's just that the system allows him to take too much credit and be in charge of things. I'm sorry to have interrupted. No, that's okay. Yeah. You know, it, it, and it was structured very carefully to drop these sort of seeds in at the, what we hoped were the right moments to reveal the um, sort of wrinkles in his character that then we dive deeper into. Um, and it's a, it's a journey that so many people have been on where you fall for someone or something or some idea that seems 
like an opportunity for something better. And then you realize that there's a lot of darkness and dysfunction and you have to get yourself out of it somehow, you know? And I think a lot of women can relate to that as Ty as a stand-in for the American dream in general. A lot of disenfranchised people can really connect to it. It is a sort of timeless story, but we needed uh, there were so many examples to choose from um, from the book and figuring out where to, you know, pepper them in and then have them all kind of coincide at the hopefully most uh, at the best time was a challenge, but a really fun one because we felt a, a, a strong responsibility to tell the story that was super meaningful to us, but we hoped would also touch a lot of people and resonate with them. And and the myth of the lone genius is one that has animated uh, a sort of America and the larger world for a long time. And both sides feel that like that, that um, the, the, the women entering his life sort of can feel his charisma and the sort of like crazy genius. And he plays into it. Right. So like in the moment that he's doing this really charming dance with her children to propose to her, He's also celebrating himself. And and lastly, I wanted to ask about the opening sequence in the film where you have that collision with the truck and just the explosion of Beanie Babies, um, because it sounds like it was an incredibly intricate scene to film and that you had very specific ideas of, you know, this is how we want the Beanie Babies to fly out of the truck and the movement that we want to create. And then even just the fact that you're then slowing it down. And, and so I know it took a few days to film that that entire sequence. And I was just interested interested in what some of the most challenging intricacies of it were. Sure. Yeah. That was one of the first um, scenes that we conceived of. And then it was the last scene that we shot of the whole production over three days on a very, very hot highway in rural Georgia. Um, but we, from the beginning, when we found that uh, the the account of a real truck spilling Beanie Babies out onto a, a highway back in the mid nineties, causing a frenzy of motorists, like careening over and grabbing for them. We, we, we felt that it was a perfect metaphor for everything we were trying to get across with our film and joyful and tragic, joyful and tragic. And we uh, also really wanted it to feel kind of like an operatic ballet of beanbags um, flying towards camera in slow-mo and we always wanted it to be to that cure song so we sort of very very early on conceived of it in all of that form and then um, it was a lot of phantom cameras and a lot of long hot hours and a lot of trial and error but we were really happy with what we ended up with. I'd say the, the biggest challenge was convincing people that we were serious when we yeah. said we didn't really care how the truck crashed. We cared how the beanies flew um, because these are people who spend most of their lives crashing big vehicles for Marvel films and such. And, and what they're what they're used to going for is maximum impact, maximum like explosive power. And it's a, they're incredible at that. But we were like, but where are the beanie? Like, but we want to see the beanie babies flying. And and like, that's not about explosion. Well, like, the explosion is just in service of, of like, we want to have a ballet midair. And that is not a normal request of a stunt driver. Um, so mostly like we just had to convince people over and over again that no, we really, we really just want to, we just want to know how they're going to fly. And um, and then they did it and it was fantastic. You, you do have to shoot it a lot of times if you want to catch them flying, right? 
But we did. (laughs) Sorry. It's so interesting to hear all the details of everything that went into making the film. So congratulations on the movie. And thank you so much to both of you. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. Thanks for your questions. They were so thoughtful.